0: Good day to you. Hello there, wherever you are. Thank you for joining me for the next in our series that seems to be expanding and growing. I'm Michael Jackson. To me, one of the astonishing headlines of the week has been mostly overlooked, certainly underreported. Did you hear what the turnout was in the first round of the French presidential elections? And it wasn't even a record for them. But to me, it's amazing and a most significant boost for representative government. There was a turnout of 84% of the electorate. Eighty-four percent. I wonder, what, if anything, would bring so many people to the polls in any election here in the States? Could it happen here? It should, but could it? It was, of course, the most anticipated political event in Europe for many a year. Then, on May 6th, France faces its first real presidential choice in a dozen years— Maybe the answer to the rhetorical question is we need what the French have this time, two exciting and very different candidates who bring a clear choice. Two candidates vividly contrasting visions, but 84%. One of the most effective weapons in the fight against legalized abortion in our country has been the expression partial birth. That is not the medical description of the seldom used method of terminating a pregnancy, Congress took the lead in 2003 and they banned the procedure and last week the Conservative Supreme Court ruled by a 5-4 to four vote to uphold the federal partial birth abortion ban. The ban method, or technique, has been constantly attacked by anti-abortion advocates who claim that the procedure is the same as killing newborn infants. It's been used in only 0.17% of American abortions, The court's majority ignored broad medical consensus, which includes the American College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists, which believes that the ban will be harmful to women's health and interferes with medical decision-making. Until now, American women seeking a mid-term or late-term abortion had a couple of procedures available to them. No longer. The doctor could partially extract the fetus before collapsing its skull, or... and and this is far more commonly the case, he could dismember the fetus in the uterus, effectively killing it before removing it. Reading beyond the current situation, this is possibly going to open the floodgates for states to sort of chip away at Roe v. Wade. It's the start of the debate that pro-life advocates have wanted. This is a significant shift in abortion jurisprudence. Is this a a decisive first step toward dismantling Roe v. Wade? We don't know, but it could likely be the case. Yet to be tested is whether the ban will make it difficult for doctors to understand what they're allowed or not allowed to do. I'll wager that in the near future we'll learn whether the High Court's partial birth decision is a major shift or a narrow exception. I thought the wording of the majority was paternalistic, patronising frankly archaic. They said that women may suffer, quote, loss of esteem and severe depression, or, quote, regret their choice to abort the infant life they once created and sustained. Watch, the ruling could end up having a very significant impact on the next election. Over the weekend gone by, Senator Hillary Clinton said that if she's elected president, she'd make her husband a roaming ambassador to the world, I don't think the comment comes as a surprise to anyone. She followed up saying, He said that he would do anything I asked him to do, I would put him to work. He himself said in an earlier interview, All presidents need all the help they can get, and we're going to have a lot of challenges, so if she asked me to do something, whatever it was, I'd probably do it. He then added that she'll make the decisions, of course. As supportive as I have been of the former president, Bill Clinton, and as respectful as I am of the candidate, Senator Hillary Clinton, I'm concerned about the likelihood of this becoming a co-presidency and the ushering in of what is constitutionally prohibited, a third Clinton term. I'm certainly not saying that this is what would occur, but it seems hard to believe that the global ambassador idea, a very limited and safe job for the former president, would hardly be enough. What do you think of their statements? And does the idea offend or bore your support for those two exceptionally talented politicians. There is opinion that our President, who has very much restricted the use of his power of the veto, might find himself doing so with a bill that recently passed the House by a vote of 241 to 177, a vote split roughly along party lines, a vote for a vote for the citizens of the District of Columbia. It must surely come to pass. It would correct an historical injustice. I mean, is there any other representative democracy anywhere that does not afford the citizens of its capital a voice? Eleanor Holmes Norton, D.C.'s non-voting member, caught the bipartisan effort a 206-year labor of love. It's always seemed to be something of a constitutional travesty. It was in 1801 that Congress created Washington, D.C. as a federal enclave, deciding not to declare it a state. There have been efforts in the past to grant the 515,000 citizens of D.C. a chance to vote, like all other citizens of voting age. The earlier efforts failed to empower the D.C. citizens who pay federal taxes, serve on federal juries, cast votes in presidential elections and fight in wars without a single voting member in Congress. The efforts came up against the political reality that Republicans would be most unlikely to vote to add a safe Democratic seat for the district, a Democratic stronghold. Some Republicans are willing to buck that trend and speak out in favor of the idea, including the former congressman, football player, vice presidential candidate Jack Kemp. His recent comments included, I see this as a civil rights issue. We can't send the residents to fight for the right of Iraqis to vote, without allowing the residents of this city to elect a member of Congress. Lest we forget, the official D.C. license plate includes the understandable complaint, taxation without representation. Civil unions and domestic partnerships involving same-sex couples, you know, male or female, are now recognized by a few but apparently growing number of states. New Jersey, Hawaii, Maine, Vermont it's an important step on the way to full and equal recognition through same-sex marriage. Civil unions and domestic partnerships are an important recognition of gay relationships, but at this stage they still represent separate but unequal treatment. I learned from the New York Times that a federal study has identified over 1,100 rights or benefits that are accorded only to the legally married, which means that even in the states which recognize civil unions, Gay couples may also be discriminated against when it comes to taxes and pension benefits. New York's new governor, Eliot Spitzer, is soon expected to introduce a bill in the state legislature to simply legalize same-sex marriage. He'd be the first governor in the nation to introduce a gay marriage bill. Religious groups, and most particularly the Catholic Church, are likely to be the bill's most outspoken opponents. Of course, the religious institutions have the absolute right to refuse to marry anyone within their own religious house, but they must not be allowed to dictate who can or cannot be married by the state of New York or wherever else it may be legalized and accepted in the future. Is it an idea whose time has really come? We need, and we deserve, an Attorney General of the United States who has the knowledge, ability, "'and stature that the office demands. "'The president has time and again shown his support "'and utter words of praise for his selection, "'the ever-loyal Alberto González. "'What is it that the chief executive sees in this man beyond loyalty? "'Oh, yeah, loyalty is a virtue, "'but to Mr. Bush, is that all that matters?' "'His performance before Congress was awful. "'His inability to recall meetings that he attended... "'Memos he read, decisions he made, "'or the answers he gave to even basic questions "'suggest an appalling memory. "'Or maybe deceitfulness, or maybe just plain incompetence. "'This is our nation's top law-enforcement officer. "'We demand, we deserve better. "'It was, in all probability, "'his mutual belief in the effectiveness of capital punishment "'that brought him close to the then-Texas Governor George W. Bush.' Of the 152 death penalty cases that Mr. Bush presided over as governor, Gonzales was his general counsel for the first 57 cases. The men were all executed. It was his job to prepare a document that summarized the facts of the case. As reported by the Washington Post columnist Richard Cohen, I quote, In some respects, this should come as no surprise. Bush remains a major advocate of the death penalty, and he retains a touching belief in the near perfection of the system. Indeed, one reason his Justice Department looked askance at some United States attorneys is that they were insufficiently enthusiastic about capital punishment. Gonzalez, this is a fact, never questioned a condemned prisoner's guilt. He knew what his employer wanted to hear on the death penalty. Believe it or not, Gonzalez is famous for never reconsidering a death penalty case. He is very much the president's man, wanting to expand the Patriot Act wanting to give more intrusive powers to the FBI. Of course, that which has embroiled the Attorney General is, at the most basic level, quite simple. U.S. attorneys serve at the pleasure of the President. They are hired and fired for political reasons. Clinton dismissed 93 of them upon taking office in 2001, but that surely does not excuse the dishonesty that has followed from Gonzalez. Frankly, if the AG went to the Senate to convince the world that he ought to be fired, It is hard to imagine how he could have done a better job, short of simply saying the obvious, that the firing of the eight United States attorneys was a Republican Party purge. He came off as an incompetent fool. We might even eventually discover that the purge was directed by the White House and involved the President's top political advisor, Karl Rove, and the former White House counsel, Harriet Myers. Dick Cheney, where are you? Do you remember, not too long ago, perhaps as short as three presidents is past, people like Bush one and Bill Clinton, led a country that was pretty much liked, mostly popular, respected more than feared? Our country's hegemony appeared to be natural and benign. We certainly can't make that claim anymore. It could be that way again if we next elect a president with vision. No other nation can, at this stage and for the foreseeable future, have the global reach to bring about the necessary return to the way things were, instead of the growing anti-Westernism we face today. As the author of Second Chance, Three Presidents and the Crisis of American Superpower, Zbigniew Brzezinski writes in his blistering attack on the failed foreign policy of George W. Bush, There can be no return to the early 1990s, not least because of the anti-American character of a global power awakening in the developing world. Anti-Americanism has become an integral part of the shifting global demographic. In a Brzezinski nutshell, the most likely alternative to a constructive U.S. global role is chaos. That's it for now. If you'd care to comment or respond to anything we've been discussing, love to hear from you soon. And soon is when we are scheduled to meet again. I'm Michael Jackson. Thank you.